0: Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited your availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details
1: Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Are you looking for brand new episodes of a short How Stuff Works podcast that explains the everyday world around us? Then check out Brain Stuff with me, Christian Sager. New episodes hit every Monday and Wednesday on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or
2: anywhere else you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert,
1: a lot of times on this podcast, we end up talking about instincts. Yes. We use our instincts to talk about instincts. For better or worse. Yes. Yes. Uh, often worse, but <laughs> one of any animal's deepest instincts is the escape instinct. It's right down there with the desire for food, water, reproduction, but I would say maybe even more immediate. Oh yeah. And you can definitely see how powerful it is by the way that escape instincts, even in rational, really high functioning primates like human beings can totally short circuit rational thinking and lead to mass panics that kill people. This happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the escape drive, you know, the fight or flight impulse has been associated in neuroscience with the amygdala and the autonomic nervous system deep deep, primitive, old parts of the brain. The
2: rat-like hind brain, yes. the, the reptile brain.
1: Right, uh, though I have heard people disputing the term reptile brain. Oh, yeah, really, yeah. But, I, I but,
2: do not refer to it as such in a, from a scientific standpoint. Right,
1: <laughs> uh, but but the idea of the, the earlier, more primitive parts of the brain that go way back in evolutionary history, that is there. And so escape is is rooted down in those really primitive parts of the brain. It's this fundamental, intractable part of human psychology because think about it. When you go into a room, even if there's no cause of danger whatsoever, just say it's an office Christmas party or uh-huh.
2: something like that. Oh, yeah. You better believe I'm going to have an escape plan at an office. Christmas exactly. party. Exactly.
1: What's the <laughs> first thing you do in your mind? If you're like me, it's probably unconscious. You're not consciously thinking about it. But mm-hmm. you do just sort of take note of where all the exits are. Yeah. In the room. Do you do the same thing, Robert?
2: Yeah. Well, I, I would say. Like the physical exits, it's almost uh, like a subconscious thing. Mm -hmm. But I also will kind of have like social exit strategies in mind as well. Right, right. If if this gets uncomfortable for any number of reasons, and I'm not saying like office Christmas parties in particular are uncomfortable, but like any social situation that I'm not like 100% comfortable with, I'll have that escape hatch in the back of my mind. You
1: know, that's a really good point because it, that kind of shows how our obsession with physical escape extends even to our metaphors and our abstract mm-hmm. thinking. You know, you're in an awkward social situation. How do I get out? You're in a bad relationship and you think, how do I find a way out of this? You're not physically finding a way out, but that that's the way your brain
2: goes. It's like the hatch in the top of an elevator or in the roof of a school bus. Uh-huh. It, you're probably not going to shinny up any uh any elevator shaft uh cables uh, today, but there's something comforting about knowing that hatch is there right?
1: though I have always kind of wanted to do that but It looks like so in fun the in the movies yeah. yeah uh but but it's true I think always somewhere deep in your mind, there is a part of you mostly unconscious that is obsessed with escape and it's always doing the precalculations for an escape trajectory. How would I get out of here how How could I get out if I had to? So, of course, our obsession with escape, uh, escape routes, flight from danger, it extends to our technology. Our technology always reflects our psychology. So when we imagine a rebel spaceship fleeing from the Galactic Empire, we also imagine escape pods fleeing from the larger rebel ship. Mm-hmm. And, uh, no, of course, no science fiction vessel is complete without an escape pod. And I think at some point this year, I bet when times were rough, and the world seemed full of despair. You thought about an escape pod, didn't you? Oh yeah. Sometime this year, many of us have found ourselves idly wishing you could just
2: get into the capsule and blast away and leave everything behind. The one I always come back to in in fiction is uh, the escape pod that uh, that that president, ideal president Donald Pleasance uh, uses. <laughs> um to escape uh, from Air Force 1 in Escape from New York. It's also my favorite. Yeah. yeah. Cuz it's it's so comfy.
1: It's an egg.
2: Yeah, and and Pleasant's is kind of egg-like himself. So and it it's he just is. this perfect egg that he's able to get into and escape from immediate danger into of course more immediate danger
1: right so if you haven't seen the movie uh president u.s president donald pleasance which is mm-hmm. kind of strange because he has a british accent yeah uh he gets uh his plane gets captured by terrorists who are going to kill him and they're going to crash the plane into manhattan i believe That was kind of strange uh but uh yeah so donald pleasance gets into this big egg mm-hmm. and he gets shot out the back of his airplane to safety i think he says something to his doomed staff like man god watch over you all <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's a great one. But there are tons of great fictional escape pods. They're in all kinds of James Bond movies. Oh there's yeah, always.
2: Moonraker had a great one that was kind of like a like a sexy um, uh, bachelor pad. They're always like
1: that. There, there's some aquatic sca- escape pods in uh, James Bond movies too. Mm-hmm why do the escape pods in these movies always have like satin sheets and champagne coolers and curtains on
2: the windows? It's weird because they're kind of, it's kind of, there's a sense of it being a, uh, a comfy little abode mm-hmm. and, a, and like a little bed, but also kind of like a little casket, you know, <laughs> it gets complicated, I guess, <laughs> when you start teasing apart how we design our, our escape pods and how we design our, our, ca- our coffins. <laughs>
1: You're totally right. It is like a coffin. It's like a sexy, sexy coffin. Uh But of course, so we don't have to look entirely to fiction for examples of escape pods because sometimes we really do build escape capsules of some kind into our technologies, especially our vehicles. Um But why would you build escape capsules into real vehicles? Why not just have a door? Well... <clears throat>
2: That's kind of is, an obvious question. It's a, it's a great but. question. Um, <laughs> I think what one of the, the the main area to look for an answer here is in the realm of aviation, and a lot of uh, we're going to go through several examples that are related to aviation or um, or space exploration. Because we've all seen like – or I don't know about we've all, but I've certainly seen my f- fair share. And I know you've seen your fair share of like old serial adventures from the 30s and 40s mm-hmm. where you have individuals trying to get off of a crashing airplane. Yep. And they're using an obvious set with just an, an abnormally large fuselage. Mm-hmm. And they're walking with relative ease down the aisle of this airplane to go jump out of a door – out of the the, the, uh, the, the, the portal yeah. with their parachute. And of course, a crashing airplane or an out of control airplane or airplane in peril is not going to be that straightforward a situation generally. Right. Well, I mean, p- passenger aircraft
1: also are just not made to be jumped out of. Right. You can <laughs> so- read the whole D.B. Cooper story for,
2: uh, yeah. <laughs> for some more details on this. So there's a basic need for an escape system, be it an, be it an ejection seat, which we're not really going to get into ejection seats much uh, here.
1: Though or- we should mention we're all familiar with ejector yeah. seats, right? Like in Top Gun, the ejector seat will propel you up, the pilot out of the failing air- aircraft, you deploy a parachute, you get the
2: pilot safely to the ground. But, yeah. but generally the canopy comes off, Yeah. though some there are models of ejection seats where the canopy did not come off and you just blast through the glass. Right. But today
1: oh. we're talking about escape pods. Right. So when you need this enclosed space, when does that come in
2: well it's going to come when you need added protection uh certainly when you're dealing with higher altitude higher speed aircraft mm-hmm. and and of course this is just on top of we, we talked about you know the need for the individual for the pilot for the crew member to have an escape plan but of course uh, just to, to boil down like the basic economic idea here is that human lives are more valuable than machines really yeah but not in like a moral sense because most of these are war machines designed to like drop nuclear payloads on uh, whole cities, right? No, but, it means they cost more to train, right? Right. You need, you need highly trained specialist individuals who are piloting these aircraft. And even though the aircraft costs millions and millions of dollars, if it goes down in flames, at least you can say, in a sense, you're saving the brain of the aircraft. You're saving the pilots that flew it.
1: Exactly. So let's look at some examples from aviation history of these great, uh, uh what would you call it? If if the pilot being saved from a failing aircraft is like saving the brain, the escape pod is like the jar that you put the brain in.
2: Yeah. So yeah. let's look at some of these jars. All right. Well, so the first one we're going to bring up – and we're going to – I'm going to try and make sure that we have images related to these on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com because um, – you're gonna, we're gonna try to describe everything, but you know, you're gonna, you're gonna probably want some visuals. Mm-hmm. So the first, uh, one we want to mention here is the, uh, B-58 Hustler, the uh, Convair B-58 Hustler. So this was, a, a bomber that saw service 1960 through 1970. Uh, about 116 were built. It was a three-man crew.
1: This was a U.S. Air Force yes, vehicle? Yes, U.S.
2: Air Force. Uh, debuted 1956. Uh, and it was the U.S. Air Force's first operational supersonic bomber. It was visually notable because it had these awesome Delta wings. Oh, you yeah. Know, so it looked like an arrow. Yeah. Um, and it also had a wasp waist fuselage it was so thin that it had to use external bomb pods gleaming chrome appearance in most of the images you see of it so yeah it looked like an arrowhead though maybe an arrowhead either you know pregnant with death or infected with explosive parasites however you want to frame it
1: it, it is a very weird and very sexy looking aircraft yeah. it's got this this tapered fuselage like you're talking about is kind of thin and uh the in these straight completely angular wings cutting through it It, it's cool to look at
2: yeah and and i want to i'll mention this real quick quickly here uh if it sounds like uh, if some people might be thinking oh you're, you're awfully enthusiastic about all these awful war machines uh robert uh I do have to say that I grew up in a household where my, my dad was a big aviation enthusiast and uh, was really into aviation history, uh, military aviation history. So I grew up, like, with a lot of books about these airplanes around, and it seems like there were always documentaries on TV about these aircraft. So I have a certain fondness for their designs. But back to the B-58. So, yeah, sexy-looking aircraft aircraft. Uh, It initially boasted typical ejection seats, so just blast the individual crew members out of the imperiled aircraft. But ejection at supersonic speeds proved dangerous. So Stanley Aircraft Corporation developed a retrofitted ejection capsule in in late 1962, and this allowed aircrew to eject safely at twice the speed of sound and from as high as altitudes of 70,000 feet or uh, roughly 21 uh, kilometers.
1: That does not sound like a condition in which you would want to be ejected naked out of your uh, – right. have your brain ejected
2: naked. Or even in a flight suit and, uh, and a chair, right? So they – they came up with this capsule. The capsule was essentially a clamshell hood that closed over the ejection seat. And uh, it was a... I, I found some uh, some Getty Images on this, in the Getty Images uh, database. Of oh, yeah. Some, some work that went, to, went into designing this, and it was uh, apparently referred to as the torture chamber during development, <laughs> because it... I guess because it kind of looks like an Iron Maiden or it something. It
1: really does, yeah. So this capsule, uh, you, you have the seat, it's like a right-angle kind of thing, which is where the mm-hmm. crew member would be, I guess, but Folded over the top of it, it looks kind of like a. It's just this cascading series of metal bands yeah. coming down. So it looks like a mask that a cinnabite would wear in one of the Hellraiser sequels. Yeah, and the Cenobite would be called like Shutterface or something.
2: Yeah, it reminiscent a little bit too of a what of a, a roll top desk. <laughs> yeah, 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 like that, but metal. Yeah. So this this that once it's over you, uh, this thing was airtight, had an independent oxygen supply supply system that ensured pressurization, and this was. But, but one of the things here is it was far from fully automated. Because I know when you're when you're hearing this or reading about it, you're imagining like, oh, it shuts over you and then you blast out like you're in a science fiction uh, movie. Uh, but it wasn't. The user still had a number of choices after the clamshell shut. You could continue on to ejection. Or you could hold off until the the plane made it to a lower altitude that didn't demand the pressurization. Mm -hmm. Um, The idea here being you know, that it's still incredibly dangerous uh, um, ejecting from the aircraft at high altitudes, even in the capsule. So if the plane is not in just complete peril, then maybe it makes sense to wait just a minute. Right.
1: Um, And this is a thing we should keep in mind throughout the episode. I mean, ejecting from an aircraft – Always comes with risks. There, yeah. You know, when you eject from an aircraft to bail out, there is a certain percent chance that you will be killed by the ejection
2: process. That's why yes. it is a last resort. It is a violent last resort in, in a in a terrible, dangerous situation. Now, additionally, the the pilot's capsule in the Hustler contained the control stick and other necessary controls to pilot the aircraft to that lower altitude, and then communication was maintained capsule to capsule in the airplane. Uh, so it's this interesting. Um, I, I love how these capsules are not you know immediate um immediately uh, ex- uh exercised from the the craft they're kind of a part of the craft in peril so
1: what kind of test pilot would volunteer to be the first test subject of the torture chamber
2: well it it's interesting in in reading about these different um tests because the thing you would have you'd have a fair amount of testing that went into any of these extensive testing even uh you would have test pilots that are you know trying them out in some cases on the ground um they're loading them onto um, you know, under propelled carts to just see how they um, how the impact affects them. And in the case of the uh, the Hustler's um, uh, ejection uh, capsules, uh, the U.S. Air Force used Himalayan and American black bears to test the ejection seats.
1: What how, did I hear you right?
2: Yes, say uh, that again. Himalayan and American black bears. Uh, none of them were killed during the test. They only suffered broken bones, for what it's worth, and uh, they were drugged. Uh, but we're talking ejections at speeds of Mach 1.6, um that's, we you know, uh, or, uh, and also at, at altitudes of uh, 45,000 feet. Wow. So yeah, the uh, the bears helped us out uh, in that regard. It's well, hard to argue that uh, they volunteered, but the I'm glad helped.
1: to hear that no bears were killed in the making of this escape pod.
2: Yeah, at least we can say that, right? Um, so after ejection, the capsule here featured a parachute, of course, as well as shock absorbers and inflatable bladders to turn the thing into a life raft if it fell in the water. Uh, so in short, it was it was a pretty Pretty cool escape capsule. I, th- I think it's one of the the better, like just pure examples of a, of an, a, an of an escape capsule in aviation history.
1: There are actually videos online of the tests of this escape capsule, of it coming up out of the plane. You can see it just rocketing up into the sky and mm-hmm. shooting up over the top of the plane as the plane passes underneath. It's worth looking up.
2: Yeah, there's also a fabulous Periscope Films documentary that's freely available on YouTube now, uh, that, that shows you exactly how it worked and it had, it had like some wonderful animations. They quoted Shakespeare and showed like sort of a, a Disney documentary hand. Pay, but leafing through a book of uh, the works of Shakespeare. Hmm. Just impeccably, you know, 1950s PR uh, uh, project here.
1: So do we know how often people uh, in the real world ejected from one of these planes and how well it
2: worked? This was a real revelation to me. There is a wonderful website. And I say wonderful. It's, it's a little long in the tooth now. It could, it could benefit from a redesign, but this, but the, the work that's gone into it is pretty pretty awesome it's ejectionhistory.org.uk and it's an attempt uh, by the the author and and contributors to catalog every ejection from uh, from key aircraft and 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 also rank like how how survivable each incident was Mm -hmm. so all in all, like some some aircraft have better um, databases than others on this site. But it's it's a real sobering look at the effectiveness of ejection seats and ejection uh, capsules uh, t- to determine, like, to to what extent are they able to save lives in the event of, you know, catastrophe. Uh, in the case of the Hustler, it looked like there's something like 30 ejections total uh, with the majority of them being survivals, so the torture chamber, by and large, worked. It would seem to. I don't. I don't have a have a particular stat on it because the the database doesn't really present the information that that clearly. It's not. You know, right. It's not a modern uh, spreadsheet sort of format. But uh, certainly, if you really have to have an answer for that, you can go in and count them. Um, but yeah, the hustler, an interesting plane, a great uh, escape capsule.
1: Get in that Cenobite head. Okay, let's look at another one. How about the XB-70 Valkyrie?
2: Oh, yeah. So this this one's really cool, too. So this was a prototype for the B-70. And this was another beautiful Delta Wing bomber of the 60s designed to be a high-altitude Mach 3 bomber it never actually entered service. So visually its most striking feature, the one that's, that if you've looked at aviation pictures in the past you might go, "Oh, that airplane, it's uh it's probably because it has these two large canards uh, which acted and as control surfaces. Essentially, imagine the so imagine the airplane is a bird, mm-hmm. it has two little wings right behind its ears." Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, those are just uh, you know, control surfaces essentially located behind the cockpit. Performance-wise, however, the really crazy thing about the XB-70 was that it was designed to fold its wings down Mm -hmm. during supersonic flight. And ride its own shockwave, quote, much as a surfer rides an ocean wave. That's a clear, according to the NASA.gov uh, fact sheet on this aircraft. Wow.
1: So if you look at pictures of this aircraft, it uh, also is very visually striking. As you say, I thought this one looks kind of like a paper plane. It does. It's like, yeah. it's very white and very thin, uh, extremely thin as far as the wings go. It has a paper-like kind of quality to it, except that the the, of course, the middle fuselage is kind of circular, but otherwise, it uh, it's dead ringer for paper plane.
2: Yeah, it looks it looks like a paper plane or a piece of origami, almost like an origami uh, crane.
1: Yeah, I see that too.
2: So. This airplane design came about in a time of uncertain future for traditional bombers. And the, uh, the Kennedy administration ended up scrapping it. So it, it became a research aircraft, largely for supersonic transport research, looking into the idea of using supersonic uh, uh, airliner, supersonic uh, transport planes in general. It was the right shape. It was the right size. And even though the program was scrapped, they had two prototypes. So you had uh, two XB-70 Valkyries.
1: So it was sort of a prototype Concorde.
2: Well, it was a, like that? well, it was totally a bomber, but okay. but it was the right size and it had enough in common with the designs that were being looked at for commercial use that it could be used to explore the possibilities there. Okay. So despite uh, some of the problems, the, the early flights provided data on a number of issues facing uh, supersonic transport. Uh, these included aircraft noise, operational problems, control system design, uh, comparison of wind tunnel predictions with what actually happens during the course of flight, high altitude, clear air turbulence, all of these issues. I mean, this was, there, there was still so much to learn at the time about supersonic uh, flight. But this one did have an ejection capsule. Yes. Back to the main point, the reason we're talking about it is that it did feature an ejection capsule and it had a clam, clamshell design similar to that, uh, that we discussed in the Hustler. So they're bringing back shutter face. Right. Yeah. Shutter face is in action. the, the it, ideally the chair that you're in, uh, the, 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 the cockpit seat, it kind of like folds back and then the clamshell snaps over. Uh, and it contains survival gear, oxygen systems. It also contained the flight control stick for the pilot. And, uh, you know, it's very much the same idea. We, we only had two of these. Uh, so it's, there's not a lot of ejection, uh, data on it, mm-hmm. but there is one, uh, key incident that occurred with one of the XB-70s. And that was a tragedy um, uh, involving um, one of them uh, in 1966, June 8th, 1966. The second of the two XB-70s crashed following a midair collision with uh, NASA's uh, F-104 in chase plane. How
1: did that happen?
2: Um, they were essentially they were they were doing photographs of the research that was being conducted. Mm-hmm. And one plane got too close to the other. And, yeah, it was a pretty pretty terrible accident because in the course of this, Joe Walker, the F-104N pilot, he died in the accident. Um, Carl Cross, who was making his first flight in the XB-70, was unable to eject, and he died in the crash. North American test pilot Al White uh who'd been with the uh, XB70 project since the beginning he ejected he say he ejected uh in the capsule but he received serious injuries in the process because the uh, the clamshell crushed his arm so his arm was outside of the the, oh, the, man. the clamshell and it was crushed
1: that is something i've read about in these uh these aviation eject capsules is that they tend to if they close over you, they have to close with extreme force. Yeah, uh, and so you're always at risk of having injury from the actual closing process of the capsule.
2: Yeah, and certainly, you know, going through that 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 ejection website that I mentioned earlier, you see this with with countless ejections, uh, capsules or not, where. Sometimes individuals survive. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they are minor. Sometimes there are severe injuries that are entailed in the course of escaping that aircraft. Okay, let's look at another one. How about the General Dynamics F one eleven Aardvark? Good oh, name. Yes, the Aardvark. This one. This one is, is a great, great aircraft. This was one was one of always one of my favorites. So this one was in service nineteen sixty seven through nineteen eighty eight for the U S Air Force. Of course, five hundred and sixty three were produced. And uh, it was it was always a favorite airplane of mine growing up because in probably in part because I did have a toy version of it. Ah, There you go. If you have that physical manifestation of the thing as a kid, you can't help but be a little more into it. But it was also just like a little bit like a like it was just a weird plane. It stood out from the other jets. Mm -hmm. It effectively came off like a larger bomber version of the F-14 Tomcat. The, of course, uh, you know the the top gun plane for anyone out there is not not that familiar with uh, with your jets variable sweep wings and coolest of all, tandem seating for the two man crew. Oh, okay.
1: So if you have uh if you have Top Gun in mind, of course, right. you're going to imagine front and back seating for the pilot and what the gunner? I, what are the two people? I don't know my Top Gun. <laughs> uh but yeah, you'll have one in front and one directly behind.
2: Yeah, with multiple crews, you know, you're often talking about the a pilot, um a navigator, pilot, co-pilot, uh bombardier, you know, there are all these different roles uh, depending on what the airplane is. And in your your sleeker Faster designs such as fighter planes and interceptors and fighter bombers. And in some cases, you're going to have, uh, you know, one in front, one behind. Um, also with trainers, trainer aircraft are often like that. Mm-hmm. But this one had, uh, pilot and co-pilot sitting right next to each other. Just like a love seat. Just like a love seat. And, uh, the, the cool part here is the crew didn't have ejection seats or an escape pod even. The entire cabin. Of the f-111 aardvark was an escape capsule the mcdonnell escape capsule and it looks something like a star trek's uh shuttlecraft wow
1: so we will see this idea repeated in a few minutes uh, when talking about some proposals
2: for passenger aircraft yeah it was so yeah think of think of a, a shuttlecraft yeah it was self-writing it was watertight it could be used as a flotation device Um, So, sorry, you said self-writing. Not that's not writing with a D,
1: but self-writing, as in it would bob right side up.
2: Yeah, so it was a pretty cool little capsule. I mean, it was the it was it it was the entire uh, crew cabin, really. And Uh, so, uh, so how did it work? Well, if we look to ejectionhistory.org.uk, which is the 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 leading source of information on this sort of thing. looks like there were uh, about a, uh, over 100 ejections logged for the F-111 uh, during the course of its uh, tenure. And the survival rate looks pretty good. But, again, it's, it's kind of sobering to look at a lot of this data, especially when you can see the pictures of, of the pilots that were involved. Right. Sometimes the survivors, sometimes um, as casualties. Uh, because... You can you can have this great ejection system in place, but you're still talking, again, about really dangerous situations, uh r- really perilous situations with a malfunctioning or crashing aircraft. Sometimes it's in a war zone and it, we're talking about everything from bird strike. That's when an airplane strikes a bird, mm-hmm. uh, which can have just cataclysmic uh, um, uh, results on the aircraft. You wouldn't think so. But yeah, I mean, it does a high speed bird, a high speed plane. Uh, Versus, and that meets uh you know the 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 canopy of the plane or the engine mm-hmm. so you have pr- bird strike crashes collisions engine problems all these things happen in the course of a of a of a plane's tenure if it uh you know is, is actually utilized over the course of a decade or longer um and sometimes the sometimes the stories are just like fatally short you know it's just like the the plane had a malfunction and it crashed and there's no sign that even an, an ejection was even Attempted. It just happened so fast that other times they're pretty remarkable. There's a listing for a an October 27th 1976 ejection with the Ardvark, uh, and it says, "quote capsule was fired with the airplane about 60 degrees nose down at 100 feet or less." Uh, so like the, the it seems like if, if this is in the last second, this may even be past the last second. Oh yeah. that you know? gotta be. Yeah. And they, but they, uh, actually both crew members survived. There were no serious injuries. So this one was one that sort of stood out as an anomaly of like a, it really seemed like it was going to go the other way, but they survived thanks to the, the escape capsule. Wow. Okay. How
1: about one more? What about the Rockwell B1A Lancer?
2: Yeah, this one is, uh, this is another beautiful plane. I guess kind of, you, there's kind of an evolution here. And this right. is the the form that we still find in service today. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's likely going to remain in service till around 2030, I think, are the current uh, estimates here. The U.S. Air Force uh, B-1 Lancer. So the Air Force had four B-1As built. This was the first model. And uh then they ended up doing 100 B-1Bs. The first three B-1As featured an escape capsule that ejected the cockpit with all four crew members inside it, much like we saw with the aardvark. Right. So just, the, you know, the, the next evolution uh, of the aardvark was present here. But then the B-1A was equipped with a conventional ejection seat for, for each crew member. So they ended up scrapping the the full escape capsule uh, design in favor of more traditional ejection seats. Okay. So that was kind of like the end of the um, uh, the golden age of the ejection capsule, I guess you would say, at least from a military aviation standpoint. And uh, apparently, it was only used once. I mean, you only had what uh, three aircraft that featured it. Uh, but there was an August twenty ninth, nineteen eighty four incident uh, escape. The uh, pod parachutes didn't deploy fully, and the module impacted in a right nose, a uh, low altitude. One crew member was killed; two others were severely injured. So the one use of it, uh, again during its limited uh, rollout, uh, was was very much a mixed bag.
1: So one of the big takeaways from all these stories in military aviation history is, yet again, we we said this earlier, but uh, even if you make it into the escape pod, you, it's not a sure thing. It's still a, a dangerous world out there yeah. between uh, you and the ground. Or I guess most of the danger is at the ground, but
2: <laughs> yeah, but, but yeah, it's a dangerous environment. You're not really supposed to be up there. Yeah. And the thing that got you there is malfunctioning or crashing. So Joe, I flew a few times this year. Uh, where was my ejection seat? It, it's a total bummer,
1: <laughs> isn't it? That you do not get an escape pod in a regular passenger aircraft. I want my money back. No, actually I don't because I arrived safely and so, you know, it's fine. Uh, so there are a few patents that there, there is a reason that I'm gonna to get to in a minute why you don't usually see this in passenger aircraft. But first I just wanna look at a couple of examples. One is a patent that I found filed, uh, January 2011 by Tetyana Ivanovna uh, Diminchuk, who uh, wrote this patent for, quote, method for the mass emergency evacuation of passengers from air transport and aeroplane with equipment for rescuing passengers in an emergency situation. Uh, I have to just comment reading a bunch of patents for this episode. Man, the writing style of most patents is so awful. (laughs) It is if they're written explicitly to make it hard to picture what they're talking about.
2: Yeah, goodness there there are often visuals to go with it, because otherwise it would be very difficult to get the idea from some of the write-ups.
1: Yeah, uh, I don't mean to call this one out in particular, but uh, it also, the writing wasn't amazing on it. Uh, but yeah, that's that sort of across the board. But anyway, basically what is envisioned in this one is that the airplane would have rows of seats that are enclosable into smaller capsules, and then these capsules would sit on some kind of guide track inside the airplane fuselage and when an emergency occurs the hatches in the fuselage pop open and these seat containing capsules would be ejected according to one diagram i saw it looks like they would sort of blast out of the bottom of the plane at an angle diagonal to the plane's movement Mm -hmm. but yeah i have not seen anyone uh, claiming that they're going to make a passenger plane incorporating these designs
2: yeah this particular design it it basically think of a there being a tiny train inside Uh the airplane like little train cars little subway cars that have your your seats in them right and then if 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 necessary if the situation gets dire each of those uh, train cars may be uh, pooped out of the airplane
1: Oh, it's a good one. Okay. So I found another one also that, uh, th- there were some reports about another supposed design for a passenger plane escape system. This one by a Ukrainian engineer named Vladimir Nikolaevich Tatarenko. And there are some YouTube videos demonstrating the concept complete with inspiring quotes by Confucius and Einstein. <laughs> and, uh, so the demonstration in the videos shows that under this design, what would happen is that the lower part of the fuselage detaches from the engine and and pilot section of the plane, including the entire passenger cabin and luggage storage. so if you imagine it it's like you get into the cabin of the plane and that is a detachable, section of the plane that attaches to the wings and the pilot's area, uh, through, through a connector. Okay. And so an emergency happens. The cabin of the plane essentially just detaches from the fuselage and comes off. Parachutes extend from containers on the top of the escape capsule and the cabin comes down for a soft landing on inflatable cushions. I, I have to say I'm I'm a little iffy about this one because I've mostly seen it covered on like viral news type sites. You know about uh-huh. these inventions, Robert. Sometimes you see inventions that are covered in trade press for whatever field the invention's in and they're covered in mainstream news. And then there are the other ones that get picked up on like, ain't that cool.com or something. <laughs> this one's more of the latter type. And, uh, and so, I haven't seen it in serious sources covering aviation technology. What little coverage it has gotten in mainstream press appears to be pretty skeptical of the practicality of the model. So I wouldn't expect to be seeing this implemented in any real airplanes. But there's a larger problem here, which is that even if you could make escape pods on passenger aircraft work, uh, which with enough motivation and investment, I'm sure you probably could Mm – I don't think that any of these are ever going to become a real thing. One of the first problems is that when you picture the capsules coming off, coming out of the plane and then deploying parachutes to parachute down to safety, that might help sometimes, but the vast majority of airplane accidents happen during takeoff, ascent, descent and landing. When you are nearer to the ground and parachute supported capsules are just going to be less likely to meet a happy end. We mentioned earlier problems about like trying to deploy a parachute when you're very close to the ground.
2: It doesn't usually work. Right. And think back to all these uh, the capsules we discussed so far in military aviation. These are ejection capsules. These are essentially fancy ejection seats Mm -hmm. and versions of the ejection seat, which, of course, launches the individual away from the plane, generally upward. Right. Um, and that I, I mean, like for instance, that uh, F-111 example we saw where they're exceedingly low altitude. Yeah. Like the reason they survived is probably because it launched the capsule up far enough for the parachute to come into play for them.
1: Right. Uh, so I found a 2016 Boeing statistical summary compiling all the fatal commercial aircraft accidents in, uh, in the world since uh, – well, it was between 2006 and 2015. And this only includes things that you would actually consider accidents, not things like terrorist bombs or missile strikes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but during this period, only 12 percent of their fatal accidents and 24 percent of onboard fatalities occurred during the cruise portion of the flight – which is what this is when the plane is at its regular flying altitude. Most of the time you're in the air is the cruise section. Yeah, This
2: is the part where you can get up, walk around, go to the bathroom and become increasingly annoyed at the other people on the plane.
1: Right. So this is going to be the majority of your flight time, Mm -hmm. but the minority of where accidents occur, the vast minority, about 18% of fatal accidents and 14% of onboard fatalities occurred during takeoff and climb and about 59% of fatal accidents and 61% of onboard fatalities happen during descent and landing. Uh, and so one thing you notice know from these stats is that if you do happen to be in the rare mid-flight accident, it is more likely to be a fatal one. That's kind of intuitive, right, since mm-hmm. it's 12 percent of the accidents but accounting for 24 percent of the fatalities. Right. Uh, but they just happen a lot less often. Most of the bad stuff happens near or on the ground. Uh, sometimes you haven't even left the ground. You're on the runway when something bad happens. Uh, And the closer you are to the ground, the more useless a proposition like these escape pods becomes – Overall, flying in airplanes is incredibly safe. You, I know you've probably heard stats about this before, how it's more dangerous to be in a car than an aircraft. By pretty much every measure you can look at, I think this is true. Uh, so there are different ways to estimate the difference, but here's one thing I found that puts it in terms of lifetime risk. So the U.S. National Safety Council used its yearly injury statistics. Uh, they, they do this every year to compile an odds of dying chart, which is a good idea, right? It ranks your lifetime chances of being killed by particular things. So in 2015, they claim that your odds of dying in a plane crash are 1 in 96,566. And according to their data, you are much more likely to be killed by electrocution, that's one in 12,200 by a bee, wasp or hornet sting. That's one in 55,000 or so, or in a motor vehicle crash, which is about one in 112. And I might add that in 2008, the same organization rated your lifetime chances of dying in a space or air travel accident at one in 7,178. So things seem to be vastly improving. Mm-hmm. So your odds of dying in an air travel accident are already exceedingly low. And if you are in a fatal plane accident, it's most likely to happen on the runway or at a low altitude where an escape pod attached to parachutes is much less likely to help you. Uh, the parachutes just probably wouldn't have time to unfold and decelerate you before you crash into the ground or catch on fire. But of course, another thing to consider is economics. We mentioned at the beginning the economics of the military considerations. Uh, adding escape pods to passenger planes means building new planes and making them much heavier and bulkier, which decreases passenger payload capacity, increases fuel costs, If you want an airplane with an escape pod, I think you're going to need to be prepared to pay the $9,000 per ticket or whatever it ends up costing. Yeah. (laughs) One more thing I wanted to consider, uh, I found an article in a publication called Defense One, which is from Atlantic Media, called Why Your Plane Can't Have an Escape Pod. And uh, this offered one thing I hadn't thought of, that the author of this spoke to somebody named David Aiken, who's director of space systems, uh, the Space Systems Laboratory at the University of Maryland. And Aiken said, quote, you have to be careful you don't cause an accident because of an inadvertent actuation of the safety system. Oh, yeah. It's an accident that wouldn't happen without the safety system. That didn't even cross my mind. But of course, that's the case, right? You, You could have lots because every time you activate an ejector system, you are increasing your likelihood of death in an ejection incident. And uh, and the chance of you dying in a passenger plane is already so low; it just does not seem like a good cost-benefit trade-off.
2: Yeah, I mean, an ejection seat or an ejection capsule is an incredibly dangerous de- device to have. Right. Um. My, uh, I believe if you go to a, you go to a, an air show and somebody say flies in a MIG or uh, or some sort of uh, you know, older uh, now a non-military craft. If it had an ejection seat in its previous life, it probably does not have one today. Right. Uh, because it's just not the kind of thing that uh, a non-military craft should have.
1: One last thing about passenger planes. All those movies that show Air Force One with an escape pod, uh, the best, of course, being, as we yes. mentioned earlier, <laughs> Escape from New York. Donald Pleasants gets in the egg, and it's, it's wonderful.
2: Are there others where Air Force One has uh, an escape pod? Here's one. How about the movie Air Force One? Oh, I never saw it. Is this where is this Harrison Ford versus uh Gary Oldman Gary it? or is it Gary okay I can't remember I want Who's to say it's Gary Oldman. Is Harrison, Gary Oldman president?
1: No, no, no. Harrison Ford is the president.
2: Oh, OK. He's the president.
1: He's on Air Force One. Some terrorists get on his plane. I think they're led by Gary Oldman, from what mm-hmm. I remember. They attack him. He says, get off my plane. And he fights them. And so this came out in July 1997. And I found a Time CNN article from that summer reacting to the movie Air Force One and comparing its Air Force One set to the real Air Force One. Uh-huh. Now, in the movie, actually, the plane has a an escape pod uh, the article speaks to a white house aide confirms there is no escape pod in the real air force one huh but apparently bill clinton wanted one
2: well you, you, you come I think, back the, i think they were joking <laughs> but that's what they said <laughs> well i mean you come back to the economic model this is one of the cases where it would make sense right to have an ejection capsule for uh the uh the most uh powerful uh individual in the united states right? i don't know how much does the president cost um, I think there are, there are, uh, uh, price tag evaluations available now on that topic, <laughs> but it makes sense that they might have one in that scenario, but apparently they don't. However, would they let us know if there was one? Uh, uh-huh, that's a good question. Maybe ha- they're just psyching us out. I have heard of certain situations with, uh, informational websites with information about air force one, uh, being asked to, uh, you know, cut down on the detail. Really? Yeah. Wow. Interesting. You know, through the grapevine. Uh, so I don't know. You can you can run wild with the conspiracy theories there. Maybe there is a secret escape pod. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a break, a quick break for you. Uh, we're actually going to take a break for uh, several days and then come back in and finish this. So if we sound a little different, if we sound better, Healthier, if we sound worse, if we sound a little sicker, well, it's because a few days uh, pass. But when we come back, a few days contemplating the torture chamber. Yes. When we come back, though, we are going to get into uh, escape pods in space exploration, both actual and the merely proposed. I'm Matt. I'm Noel. I'm Ben. And we are
0: Stuff They Don't Want You To Know. Each week, we cover the latest and strangest in fringe
1: science, government cover-ups,
0: allegations of the paranormal, and more. New episodes
1: come out every Friday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere else you get your podcasts.
2: All right, we're back. So we've been talking about aviation escape pods, escape capsules but uh what about outer space like it's the next uh, most dangerous environment like if if, if the air if the air the upper atmosphere is not dangerous enough let's go beyond the upper atmosphere let's go into orbit and possibly rooms beyond what do we do about escaping those situations?
1: Well, space is the natural home of the escape pod, isn't it? Because yeah. if we, if we see it in sci-fi most often, like that's where you get in the capsule, you blast down to Tatooine or wherever. That, that, that's where we really see escape pods come to fruition. Yeah. And it is quite true that humans have designed escape pods for spacecraft. Now, they're kind of different than they are in the movies because what happens in a movie like, uh, oh, I don't know aliens or something like that where there there are capsules that you're you're in deep space, uh-huh. and you get into a capsule to blast away from a ship that is exploding or infested with aliens or something like that. And then what do you do? You just drift off into space. That's how you picked up, yeah. Well, there's no, I mean, (laughs) that's not very useful as far as uh, things go right now because we do not have deep rescue
2: vehicles in deep space operating between planets and star systems. This is one of the ideas that came up in uh, Pandorum is that that everyone would, would go mad on the ship and you'd go into your escape pods and you'd blast off in the escape pods and then you would just die out there because nobody's coming to pick you up.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, what's the point? Yeah. Uh, but there may be a point if you're talking about stuff that stays really close to Earth, which mm-hmm. almost all well, all of our uh, all of our crude spacecraft so far have. So in the early days of crude spaceflight, there were a lot of proposals for various types of escape pods. And I actually found I couldn't believe this. I found an issue of popular science from September 1966 with an article called, quote, lifeboats in space. By none other than Dr. Werner von Braun, Ah. all about the all about the subject
2: of rescue from orbital vehicles. Werner von Braun, of course, the uh, the, the the famed uh, former German uh, rocket scientist who uh, came to the U.S. after the war. with um, I think he was mostly stationed out of Huntsville, Alabama, mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, contributed a great deal to our uh, space program.
1: Yeah, so von Braun says so far, and this is uh, 1966, remember, space missions have been very safe, but we're going to have to expect that at some point a crewed spacecraft will signal distress. What then? I mean, imagine it's the 1960s. What happens if there's a problem? Right. I mean, you you have no recourse yet. So what he's proposing is we need a space rescue program. So he says, imagine a crew is stuck in a spacecraft in low Earth orbit caused by a malfunctioning retro rocket. Von Braun essentially compares this to the situation of like a fishing boat that gets stuck offshore at sea and starts sinking. If you call for help and evacuate the crew into a lifeboat, you can probably be saved, uh, but we need to develop the equivalent structures for rescue within space. You need to develop lifeboats and rescue vehicles for space and orbital flight the same way you'd have them for uh, for the ocean right off the coast. So... You would have to send the orbital equivalent of a Coast Guard cutter, essentially, to rescue a spacecraft in trouble. But that's difficult because you have to wait for an appropriate launch window to allow a rendezvous between the two ships. As we know from rocket launches, you can't just fly up there. You know what I mean? It's not like getting right. in a helicopter and heading off that you're dealing with uh with massively powerful uh, velocities and great mass. So you essentially have to aim your gun the right way to start with. Yeah. It's an enormous undertaking. Yeah. And so, so you got to get this rendezvous between the two ships. And if the ship in distress is suffering a real emergency, it might be too long for them to wait for somebody on earth to line up the trajectory of the launch and wait for the correct launch window. Um, so, uh, a sub- uh, for example, a substantial number of spacecraft em- emergencies we just know are going to demand immediate rescue. They're going to be very urgent. For example, uh, von Braun gives the example of fire. This was back when NASA was using 100 percent oxygen environments in, in its spacecraft that don't do that
2: anymore. Yes, but it's highly thoughtful. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. And it led to disasters in the history of the space program. Uh, or n- another thing might be penetration of the spacecraft by a he- heavy meteoroid, you know, you get pelted with something. It breaks through the hull. You've got to escape immediately. You can't wait for rescue vehicle. Obviously, can, collision with another spacecraft would be a problem or toxic fumes in the cabin or maybe radiation contamination from. He he gives the example of an onboard nuclear power source. Oh, wow. Uh, that sounds pretty awful. But anyway, so Von Braun concludes that we need to think about the concept of lifeboats that allow spacecraft crews to escape immediately on their own terms. So he's, what he's proposing is escape pods. And so I'm going to mention a few that are illustrated alongside this article from 66. These, these illustrations are great, by the way. Uh, so one example that he gives is, uh, the emergency cocoon. And th- he says, this is under test by General Electric, quote, shelters shipwrecked spaceman in an inflated fabric ball, heat insulated by outer later, outer layers of aluminumized plastic, thin silicon rubber lining retains oxygen carried for breathing, but lets unwanted carbon dioxide and water vapor escape. So, they're putting you in a beach ball.
2: Yeah, it's like a survival bubble kind yeah. of situation.
1: You climb into a beach ball, you blast off from your ship, and you just float around in orbit in your beach ball until the rescue vehicle can come up and get to you, you you know, when you can't remain in your ship. The other one would be uh, the, quote, separable
2: shelter. And this looks more like a, a huge thermos that everybody gets in right it also reminds like both of these remind me of, of like toys you can buy at ikea uh, <laughs> the the first one a ball the second one is like one of these little tunnels that you get uh-huh. where it's like a like a fabric tunnel that you stretch out and then children can crawl through yeah uh so
1: von braun says that the separable shelter it holds five to fifteen men and can serve as a life raft for large space vehicles of the future uh, and it has uh, rocket self-propulsion that can boost it to higher, longer-lived orbit that allows more time for rescue. So th- these are more like the, the sort of roomy escape shuttles of sci-fi movies. But they still require ultimate rendezvous with a rescue vehicle that's going to gather the crew and return to Earth under its own specifications. Right.
2: These things are not going to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere in their current form.
1: Right. What if you want to make an escape pod that will get you all the way home on your own? Well, that's going to be a a different undertaking altogether. Exactly. So it makes no sense to have a full-on reentry-capable spaceship inside your regular spaceship, at least on the scale that that we create spaceships right now, because spacecraft were then and are still now – Com- totally optimized for weight and volume. Like mm. the, they tend to be very small, uh, packed tight and to have as light as possible a design to make launch economically feasible for a really crude understanding of this. If you've never thought about it before, just look at the size of the orbiter vehicle itself compared to the size of the rockets used to get it in orbit with any given launch. Right. It, it's hilarious. You, there's usually, there's way more fuel than there is spaceship. Um, And so it's not feasible to make a spaceship within your spaceship to get you home. So how could you make a self-contained reentry vehicle that would be very light and fit in storage on the already cramped crew vehicles of the 1960s? Well, some geniuses in space design and aeronautics in the 1960s had a solution to this, and it was inflatable options. Oh, okay. So, we already mentioned the beach ball floating mm-hmm. in space, but this would be the beach ball that you re-enter the burning atmosphere through. <laughs> or I guess the atmosphere is not burning, but once you're re-entering the atmosphere at high velocity, uh, you will be burning. So the, the space historian James Oberg has a good article about this from 2003 called The Pod People, nice reference, uh, published in Air and Space <laughs> magazine. And he talks about how in the early days of the space program, researchers were experimenting with inflatable reentry vehicles called things like the inflatable micrometeoroid paraglider. And this wasn't originally meant as an escape pod, but as a research probe to fly up in space and get pelted by micrometeoroids, essentially to try to figure out, you know what's the density of solid objects in Earth orbit? If you go up in space, how often can you expect to get hit by hard stuff? And so there were research vehicles like this, but they also actually did end up designing inflatable reentry vehicles uh, with with thi- designs essentially resembling, as I already said, paragliders, uh, but they they would have a heat shield of some kind so that when you reenter the atmosphere, you don't catch on fire and, and burn up and explode. Uh, one of the designs he mentions is a modified Rogallo wing, which is basically a hang glider. But imagine sort of a hang glider with struts that instead of being made of metal are a fabric tube that gets inflated with gas to such a high pressure that it becomes rigid. And so that's what we're dealing with. But back to Von Braun in 90, in uh, 1966, because he's going to point out uh, some of these crazy personal reentry vehicles that were under development at the time he was writing the, the first is the space parachute which he says is a is a concept from Douglas and essentially it's an ejector seat sort of like you would see in like a like a, a fighter jet you know uh-huh. if you have to eject so you're in your seat and then you've got a retro rocket that you use to orient yourself to deorbit to come down back into the atmosphere um and then you've got this uh what it what he calls a conical drag skirt that deploys for stel- self stabilizing reentry so it's sort of like a bowl extends around the seat
2: yeah if you were to take like a very small baby doll like one about the size of uh you know a- you know, about half the size of your index finger, mm-hmm. put it in a large, uh, metal bowl or like a tinfoil bowl, bowl. Yeah. And then drop that bowl through a planetary atmosphere. That would be what you'd be talking about here.
1: Yeah. Uh, so th- that's scary enough, but I want to get to the most epically horrifying space escape capsule concept that I've come across in the in research for this episode. And so this thing was called Moose. Huh. And it was developed by General Electric in the 1960s. And according to James Oberg again, uh, the acronym Moose originally stood for, uh, he says,
2: man out of space easiest. <laughs> but he's <then, laughs> not an actual moose because, no. Okay. But because we have had actual bears in escape, escape pop capsules already in this episode.
1: Thank you for reminding <laughs> me, Robert. But no, they did, as far as I know, they did not test it on any ungulates. Is a, is a moose an ungulate? I think it is.
2: Yeah, it's got the hoof.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, I should know my ungulates better, (laughs) but no, no, no. So uh, the the name uh, was changed to stand for, like, they backronymed it. You know, they said, "No, what it actually stands for is manned orbital operations safety equipment," which is a little tortured, but okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you you really don't want to tell an astronaut that he or she must climb into a, a device that's Got the word easiest in the title.
2: Yeah, well, but but I like the idea of, of summoning the idea of the moose for your reentry because the moose is rugged, the moose is tough, the moose the, the moose is a you know a, a stubborn, willful creature. Yes, uh, much like the astronauts' uh, uh, zeal for life. Right.
1: So, uh, and I do want to warn you: you should look up the moose to get some uh, some of the illustrations of this thing. But also, you might have some trouble if you're if you're trying to look it up because there is another NASA project called Moose that stands for something totally. Different and appears to me to be a completely different thing. So, space program really has mooses coming out both it, ends. This is
2: before NASA discovered the uh, the rich pantheon of say Egyptian deities. So say, oh, this, we'll just start, we'll just plunder this uh, this mythology, and then we don't have two things called
1: moose. <laughs> But okay, here's the whole nightmare as described uh, by by Von Braun's article. So it says, quote, self-rescue moose, a general electric idea, encases astronaut in a plastic bag that fills with polyurethane foam to assume reentry shape. He uses retro rocket to deorbit, then discards it. Bag has foldable heat shield for reentry and parachute that automatically unfurls itself for landing. So if you're having trouble picturing that, let me try to narrativize this a little bit. So here's the way it works. Major Tom realizes, oh, no, my spacecraft is on fire and my pure oxygen environment is raging out of control. Uh, Why did we do this? Well, no time for recriminations. I must climb into the escape pod. But really, the escape pod is a plastic bag with a foldable sheet of elastomeric ablative heat shielding material and the, so he folds this thing out, and the heat shield folds out to about 1.8 meters in diameter. And then, uh, with him, he's got a canister of polyurethane. So he gets into the folded heat shield, and he pulls a ripcord, and this opens up the canister of polyurethane, which which uh, fills it up, fills up the shield with polyurethane foam. So at this point, the astronaut has entombed themselves within a lump of polyurethane? Yeah, yeah. It's sort of the break-and-bake style of escape okay. pod creation. It's on the fly. Uh, so then you're out of the ship, and Major Tom's floating in space in this bag on a bed of foam, and Major Tom fires a small canister of gas propellant to orient himself with the heat shield facing the proper direction for reentry. And then he discards the gas propellant, and he uses a hand-operated solid rocket engine to enter the atmosphere. So... Tom Tom's in a bag on some foam, rocketing himself back to Earth by hand. Oh wow! There's a fabulous MacGyver
2: kind of vibe yes. to this one.
1: Yeah. So once in free fall in the atmosphere, he opens a chest-mounted parachute and then comes down to the surface for a landing. And uh, according to the Encyclopedia Astronautica, General Electric uh, General Electric conducted a bunch of tests. And showed that the basic design of moose worked. And they eventually tested it out on a falling scenario by dropping a test pilot in a moose six meters off of a bridge in Massachusetts. And they say that the test pilot survived the impact. (laughs) Congratulations, fallen off a bridge in this thing. But anyway, uh, Von Braun writes of this and, quote, the space parachute that both fold up for storage in a spacecraft, both combine the characteristics of a life raft, a spacesuit overcoat and a cocoon, which is just putting it in such a soothing way. <laughs> uh, but then he goes on to point out that while self-rescue devices like these, they will get you back down to Earth, uh, maybe not every time but you know at least in theory they work but they won't guarantee that you'll survive once you land i like that he points that out this is a good point because this is supposedly why the russians in the soyuz vehicle carried a survival pack up up and back to space containing guns and ammunition
2: oh there was at least one crash where there were there were wolves Yeah. Uh, On the prowl. So,
1: yeah, this gun, if you ever get a chance to read about it's pretty interesting. So this the Soyuz survival pack, it had a gun with three barrels and a folding stock. And they said it also worked as a shovel and had a swing out machete in it. And then it also fired three types of ammunition, which was rifle bullets, flares and shotgun shells which that sounds like a a gun you'd have in a video game.
2: Yeah, and, and again, it's important to stress just the immense cost of taking anything into orbit. So the the fact that this gun came on the journey and came back just in the event that it would be helpful um you know it it says a lot i'm so
1: glad this never led to shotgun and machete battles in space on the space station well
2: you know i i actually would love to do uh, an episode maybe a short episode on this very topic because there's some wonderful material out there about actual uh incidents of guns in space but also some proposed ideas that never really took off oh really yeah Uh,
1: guns in space. Wow. That sounds like such a horrible idea.
2: But, but then again,
1: I don't think this is stupid because like we said, you can understand if you land way off course
2: in the wilderness, it probably helps to have some survival equipment. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. I mean, yeah, these things are going to come down in the, in the wilderness. You might need a, some survival equipment up. Uh,
1: That's and this the, the moose actually came with some gear oriented towards on the ground survival as well. So it had a survival kit, uh, food and water, plus things to help the astronaut be found. So it had a thing called a SOFAR bomb that SOFAR is an acronym, uh, which is a device that uses an underwater explosion to allow precise signaling of your location to people who are listening for underwater sounds. Huh. It also had radar chaff and some flares and the, the, uh, popular science article has this Awesome illustration of the moose that, uh, Robert, I, I think you enjoyed it as much as I did. But oh, yeah, the, the astronaut has a very placid face in this picture where he's laying in this bed of foam that looks like it's just a blob that's going to envelop him and digest him.
2: Yeah, and the um, and and the, the the rockets that he's going to use to maneuver it has the look of kind of like a cross between a Hoover vacuum and a like a divining rod. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah exactly. He's holding this big
2: wishbone full of fire. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, but this is great. I would love to see this utilized in um, some sort of an action sequence. You know, uh-huh. uh, the, the sort of do-it-yourself re-entry, where our action hero just has to grab these two canisters, uh-huh. jump out of the uh, of the spacecraft, and just make their way back down to the
1: earth. Well, there are some great scenes in movies. I don't want to spoil anything about movies that ex- exist because this usually is like the very end of the sci-fi movie. But uh-huh. they involve things like this, like a uh, basically out outside of vehicle maneuvering. Okay. Uh, that's very scary when you think about it. I mean, to be lost in space without any means of propulsion and safe reentry is is just a death sentence. Mm-hmm. Can we name any of those movies, or would it be too, it would just be too much of a spoiler? Well, I know I know one. Of course, is like Gravity. And oh stuff yeah, like that, that does have some some cool uh, reentry stuff at the end. Yeah, uh, there there's also some stuff in uh, in the Martian. Mm-hmm. Did you see the Martian? Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. At as well. And the there's some outside vehicle maneuvering.
2: Okay, I think maybe in both those films, I was falling asleep towards the end a little bit. <laughs> uh, you know, and it's but hey, we're not going to spoil and say uh, whether the individual survived or not because right. that, of course, is the big the big deal. It's one thing to initiate re-entry. It's another thing to actually make it all the way to the Earth's surface again and still be alive.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh, and I guess that does give away uh, that I did finally see The Martian. People were asking after we did the Uh the How to Die on Mars episode, Mm -hmm. uh, people were like, hey, have you read The Martian? I don't know if the movie was out yet, but people were asking if we read the book because it covered a lot of the same stuff we talked about. Yeah. I had not then, but I have a fun movie. I enjoyed it.
2: Now, in keeping with that beach ball design we had, uh, we talked about earlier, there's actually a um, pre-Challenger shuttle era uh, idea for a personal rescue enclosure or pre-rescue ball. This was an uh, like 86 uh, centimeter diameter high-tech beach ball for transport of astronauts from space from from a spacecraft in distress to the space shuttle uh so crew members uh would would climb into the ball they'd assume a fetal position and they'd be zipped inside by a space suited crew member
1: huh so this is this is like what we were talking about toward the beginning of uh of von Braun's article where you you'd get into a some kind of survival capsule and just wait for rescue right
2: yeah and uh, and again this was a pre-challenger project from a time uh, during which shuttle crews wore uh no space suits uh, on board the shuttle. Uh, afterwards, afterwards, however, they wore pressure suits uh, during liftoff again.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that seems like a smart idea. Uh, but okay. So Moose and its contemporaries were basically shelved, but other space escape pod concepts came to the fore and some of them were actually realized.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for instance, there's the Gemini LSRS. So, you know, obviously no one wanted to, to wind up stranded on the moon. Uh, yet the risks of this happening were rather high during the Apollo moon missions. Uh, as such, NASA designed the Gemini Lunar Surface Rescue Spacecraft, LSRS. And uh, the idea here is that in the event that the crew wound up stranded on the moon, NASA could send this unmanned craft to their landing site. That would be a 30-day trip. And then uh, the, the two crew members could then board the craft and make a direct return to Earth. Uh, NASA also developed an orbital variant aimed at rescuing three individuals marooned in lunar orbit, as well as a lunar surface survival survival shelter model aimed at giving astronauts on the surface a little more time to await like a full-blown uh, you know manned rescue. Uh-huh. And uh, they eventually planned to produce a, a universal lunar rescue vehicle to perform all three tasks for a trio of... Of astronauts, uh, but this was one. Of, this is one of those sort of later day Apollo ideas that really came about too late. Like our, our interest in the moon was uh, was going away at that point.
1: Can you imagine though? Actually being stuck on the surface of the moon for thirty days, waiting yeah. for rescue.
2: It's crazy. It's like I was trying to sort of put it in terms of thinking about like my own household. So. At our house, we we currently have two cars, new car and old car. Mm-hmm. And if I go, to, if I drive to the grocery store, if the car breaks down, a I can walk back from the grocery store, or mm-hmm. my wife can come and pick me up in the car, in the other car, or something to that effect. You know, yeah. But. This is the kind of situation where there's there's only one car uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> or it's going to take or it's going to take a tremendous amount of effort to get a second car available and then to gas it up and send it on its journey to pick you up at this impossible store. And you're driving to the middle of the desert in Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. It's um yeah. So I kept trying to put it in, in sort of like logistical, real life, surface world terms. And, uh you know, some some models work, but some just ultimately uh, fall short of capturing the just severe isolation. Uh, like the closest thing I guess would be to just, uh, to, to just set out to the middle of the Arctic Ocean, you know? Right. Uh, well, hey, so I've got a question. Yeah. What
1: happens if you have to escape the International Space Station?
2: Well, luckily there, there is a way. Uh, so, um, <laughs> Yeah, so let's say you're in the International Space Station and uh, something catastrophic happens. Maybe there's space shrapnel or more problems with the, the station's toilets and those just get out of hand. Uh, whatever. Some of the ammunition for the Soyuz uh, survival kit just explodes. Yeah, <laughs> or, you know, you maybe just run out of vodka. Whatever the dilemma, there is an escape craft on hand, and it's uh, one of those uh, Russian Soyuz uh, space capsules. So. We first flew one to the ISS in 2000, and it's been uh, it's been a fixture ever since. Uh, it can survive reentry as we, um, as with the uh, 2009 space junk sh- scare. It can also provide just a safe refuge during uh, the scare um, and uh, following the 2003 Columbia uh, shuttle disaster. The Soyuz uh, served as the primary means of transport to and from the ISS. Uh, the trip took up to two days, and the trip back was a, a mere three point five hours. Huh. So this is the idea here with the the Soyuz is that it's kind of like all right, I'm I'm terrified of my car breaking down um, on my way to the store. Why don't I just keep a car at the store? Yeah, permanently. Right. And then I can always drive that pack if something goes wrong. Um, th- that's kind of the the idea here. So the, the only thing is that up to so only up to three crew members. Can return to Earth from the uh, ISS aboard a Soyuz TMA spacecraft. Uh, the vehicle uh, lands on the the flat steep of uh, Kazakhstan in Central Asia. The re- again, the return takes uh, about three and a half hours, and this is why you can you can only have three people on the ISS at any given time unless there's another craft present. Oh, that makes because sense because you can only get three people out in an emergency.
1: Right. If you yeah. have a fourth person there. And you've got to evacuate. One of them is going to be taking the moose.
2: Right. And it's, yeah, it's not like. <laughs> I'm it,
1: sorry. I'm just kidding.
2: They don't actually have yeah, a moose as I, far as, as I know. As far as we know. But but yeah, I mean, you can't clown car this thing. You can't just right. pack a bunch of people in there and have them sort of hold on to the the sides of the capsule. I mean, you have to, uh, there has to, you have to strap yourself in there. There's a, uh, there are oxygen uh logistics in place. So three people or less, no more. Now, that's not to say we haven't looked into other possibilities, more, I guess you could say, refined possibilities than just having uh, a, a three-person spaceship on hand up there. Right. Um, at, at one point, uh, NASA was looking into the X-38. This was the uh, ISS crew return vehicle, and this was a really cool design. It basically looked like a mini, like, stubby space shuttle. Huh. Uh, and, and this would have, uh, this would have allowed um, you know, more individuals to, uh, to return from ISS to Earth, uh, but it was a pretty, um, pretty costly program, according to a Wired uh, magazine article, uh, from the time the program, uh, had cost around $510 million, uh, so far. And then it was just 50 million shy of completing its flight test when basically under the, uh, the, the George uh, W. Bush administration, uh, space and, and the, and revisiting the moon became, uh, you know, devalued as an objective. uh uh-huh. So the X-38 went away. As a possibility. Now, it's also worth noting that um, one of the more dangerous things about rocket propulsion into space is just taking off. It's kind of like with, with aviation. Of course. Like that's the dangerous thing. That's that's when you have this enormous explosion strapped to the bottom of the craft propelling you up out of the atmosphere. So uh, as, as has become important in, in the past, having a, a means of ejecting the capsule from the top of that massive explosive rocket mm-hmm. is often uh <laughs> highly advisable. And uh, as we're going more and more uh, into into that uh, launch style, we're getting, we're seeing more and more of a return to that. Um so in in a way we're going back to technology that we used uh, with Mercury and Apollo spacecraft. We see this in the form of a, you know a basic launch escape system. So you have a top mounted okay. rocket on the capsule that in the event of a mishap during takeoff can blast the man capsule clear of the rocket and allow to parachute back to the surface oh, that seems very useful yeah the Soyuz uses this uh this technology and there are a number of manned spacecraft that are currently uh, in development uh several of which are capsule based and you know would also employ this so we're talking about like uh, nasa's uh, orion multi-purpose crew vehicle spacex uh their dragon v2 there's also uh, the the u.s boeing cst 100 um there's a There's a quote here that I found from SpaceX officials, and they said it's similar to an ejection seat for a fighter pilot. But instead of ejecting the pilot out of the spacecraft, the entire spacecraft is ejected away from the launch vehicle. And that
1: is something that I guess you can think of as as somewhat practical to do because of this inherent separation between the spacecraft capsule and the launch vehicle itself. This is a natural division because they're going to be separating anyway at some
2: point during the ascent. Correct. Yeah, they're, they're, they're separate entities anyway. Yeah. All right.
1: We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to look at a few more escape pods for some stranger
2: scenarios involving natural disasters. Want to position yourself for career success? Master the Fundamentals of Business with HBX Core, a three-course online program developed by Harvard Business School faculty. Immerse yourself in real-world case studies as you dive into business analytics, economics for managers, and financial accounting. The three courses that Harvard Business School faculty determined were essential to becoming fluent in the language of business. The innovative HBX online platform was developed from the ground up to foster real-time peer-to-peer engagement and interaction. Complete the coursework on your own time while meeting regular deadlines. Network with a global cohort of peers and earn a credential from HBX and Harvard Business School after successful completion of the program. Boost your resume, grow your network and advance your career with the HBX core credential from HBX and Harvard Business School. To learn more, visit abouthbx.com slash how stuff works. So, uh, Joe, you, you grew up in like uh Middle Tennessee, didn't you? Or you? or No, uh, Chattanooga. Chattanooga. Did, uh, so not did you guys middle, get a lot of tornadoes in Chattanooga? We, we got tornadoes.
1: Yeah, yeah we uh, actually t- tornadoes have been right through my parents' neighborhood before, okay. r- like right through the backyard. Okay, uh, I wasn't there at the time, but it's it's definitely
2: it can be scary when they whip through. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I uh, I haven't grown up in Middle Tennessee. We had we had a lot of tornado scares as well, and so that. That possibility was always in the back of, of my mind growing up that, you know, the tornado could come and what can you do? What can you do against a tornado? It's this titanic force of nature that's just going to destroy everything in its path. Uh, let's see. Could we look to movies for inspiration? What do they do in that movie Twister? I believe they throw a candy bar, uh, in one direction and then run in the other. And then, so, so that they distract the tornado <laughs> with the candy bar. Right. I think that's how that went down. Uh, no, generally in uh, in tornado movies and in tornado reality, like all you can do is find shelter. Right. If you yeah. have a if you have a storm shelter, if you have a a fortified storm basement, uh, you can run in there latch the door and just ride it out. But it is very
1: important, very important that your shelter be a high quality shelter, like a building with a foundation. Yes. Uh, not necessarily something like a trailer. In fact, I have often heard the advice given to people who are living in mobile homes and trailers, anything that's not solidly anchored to the ground or built on a foundation, that You're better off not in the trailer than in it because it Mm -hmm. it essentially just turns into a a death machine if a tornado comes through and you're inside a mobile home.
2: Yeah. So I think we've all consumed images, be they mental images, cinematic uh, or otherwise, of trailers and mobile homes just sucked up into the sky by deadly twisters or certainly trailer parks that have been devastated by actual uh, tornadoes. Yeah. Uh, But what if you what if you actually had an escape pod for your trailer? Uh, now, before you envision a rocket-propelled trailer bathroom that blasts you away from the crumbling wind-grip trailer as it's you know sucked into the sky amid all the debris, um, remember this: as as the, as the twister sucks the trailer up into the air, what you want to do is stay firmly fixed to the ground. Sure, right? I mean that's ultimately the design of of any uh, escape capsule is right. get me back to the surface of the earth. Yeah, but in this case. You're already on the surface, so you just need to remain there at all costs. Okay, so I'm following you so far. What, so how, where do escape pods come in? <laughs> well, <laughs> as far as I know, this does not this has has not been built yet. Okay, maybe some individuals have have taken it upon themselves to build it. I, I hope so, and if they did, I would love to see the the, the photos. But no, we're going to talk about uh, we're going into the
1: wildest corners yes. of the patent
2: internet. Yeah, particularly a 1998 patent for a tornado escape escape capsule for trailer homes. Genius. Yeah, it's it is. It's pretty ingenious. It's essentially a little safe room. in your trailer anchored to the ground, and it consists of the following. This is from the the patent. First, an opening formed in the floor of the house trailer and positioned directly below said internal compartment. So you have your, your compartment and underneath it, there's like a hole in the floor. Okay. An escape capsule dimensioned to be received and releasably supported within said internal compartment. And then you have a ground engaging anchor positioned beneath said internal compartment in the house trailer and then a tether that's connected between the escape capsule and the grounding uh, anchor. So it's, it is. Like this fancy little capsule in your trailer. There's a hole in the trailer underneath it, and it's anchored to the ground firmly.
1: Okay, so I I said this is kind of ingenious, but I, I mean, if you're going to go to the trouble to build this thing, why not just anchor your trailer to the ground?
2: Well, yeah, you could you could make that argument, and and maybe that's why this wasn't built. But, but the, I guess the, the, the argument here is this way you don't have to anchor the entire trailer to the ground. You just anchor this one little safe room. Okay. Well,
1: maybe, in, in fact, I don't know. I mean, I, I assume most of the danger of being in a trailer or a mobile home when a tornado comes through comes from the fact that it's not anchored and can be tossed around. But maybe there is additional danger, uh, from being in the trailer. Like if the, if. Essentially, if the building materials are not sturdy enough, right. Does it does it get shredded and turn into a bunch of knives flying at you that were formerly the walls and ceiling? Yeah,
2: yeah. I think I, I don't can. know,
1: but uh, but maybe maybe this would avert that.
2: Yeah, and. You know, and I guess also it's it kind of comes back to that old Seinfeld bit about why don't they just make the airplane out of whatever they made the black box out of, right? Right. Like some – maybe it's just not – it's not economically feasible to offer the trailer right. as a fully anchored, fully storm-proof um, uh, living option. Yeah. but. But well, what
1: if probably, you, they probably don't do that because the airplane couldn't get off the ground right
2: but but what if you could just have this one little capsule in the house but then I'd also the, the thing is anyone who's ever been in a trailer before uh, and I certainly have you um you don't have a lot of room in there anyway, right, so the other thing is how do you sacrifice the room for this compartment? Unless you end up utilizing it for something else. Like I guess you have to, you could use it as a closet. But then I can well imagine the scenario where someone looks out the window or they turn on the radio. Oh my goodness, there's a twister coming. I've got to clean out the closet because that is my only <laughs> chance of survival. And so you're frantically trying to move everything oh, out of board there. games. We never even played yeah. these. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, because other options, what you could have it be the bathroom. How would that work to have your your bathroom be the escape capsule? The shower um, is what I was
1: thinking. You get yeah. into the shower and it's like a I don't know why the shower. I guess no, I no, that the, could work.
2: Yeah. Because it's like a it's like a sealed off little box in a certain way. Yeah. Like, okay, I could see that working. And and you would you would probably not fill the shower up with just a whole bunch of junk in the meantime. And the fact that you would use the shower would make it uh, remain a, a, an open option for a skate capsule. Right. Then
1: again, you wouldn't want to be flying around inside the shower and bashing your head against the faucet.
2: Right. So you'd have to have like a shower. Like, like a, a padded shower. shower stra- padding and straps on the wall so you can uh-huh. strap yourself in.
1: Man, a padded shower, that'd probably get a little mildewy, wouldn't it? Yeah.
2: <laughs> If the material was right, I don't know. I think we're up, we're updating the patent here. I think we have some great ideas. Uh- OK, well, I've got another okay. uh, escape pod
1: for a, a sort of escape pod for natural disasters. And these are tsunami survival capsules. Okay. There are multiple designs I've come across for this. Yes, it sounds crazy, but I could find evidence of at least a couple of real companies that have created and manufactured tsunami escape pods. So the first one is a product that was known as the NOAA or NOAA's Ark, and it was created by a Japanese company called Cosmo Power almost 10 years ago. It got some press in 2011, I assume related to the March 2011 earthquake and tsunami that hit Japan, mm-hmm. but basically it looks like a giant yellow ball with a hatch and a little porthole window near the top, and the yellow color is strategic because it hopefully makes the escape capsule easier for rescuers to find once the devastation is over. Uh, and the structure is made of enhanced fiberglass, and the company claims it is strong enough to withstand earthquakes, hurricanes, and tsunamis. But so the obvious idea is a tsunami's coming. You've got one of these things. I don't know. where I guess you'd have it sitting out in your backyard or something. Uh, you'd yeah. want to have it a place where it could float free wherever it is. On the roof of the house, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. But everybody, you realize the tsunami is coming. You climb into this thing and it has enough room inside to hold four adults. Inside, there is a floor and a pole, just a metal pole going straight through the center of the sphere. And I guess that is to cling to while you're hoping this thing works. But anyway, according to an ABC News report, uh, the shelters were selling for about $4,000 a piece. In 2011, I don't know if this company still exists in any form, or if these things are still made, or if anybody has ever used one successfully. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, th- th- there is one product. I make of it
2: what you will. The product, yeah, and they were, that's the thing too. They're selling the product. They're right. selling the idea of the escape capsule more than anything. Much like you know, much like a, a storm shelter or a bomb shelter, mm-hmm. it's the idea that there is an escape. It's an idea that if. The tsunami occurs, if the tornado occurs, if, uh, you know, nuclear Armageddon occurs, there is some sort of an escape. There is some, so there is an escape capsule for this scenario that my, uh, my primitive, uh, parts of my brain can, uh, can feel good about.
1: Yeah. Obviously I claim no expertise in how to survive high energy events, but. I looking at these things I do have to wonder it's like okay so they float that's good you you're not going to get trapped underwater hopefully you know so you're in this thing you'll float up to the top eventually and be rescued but also you know a tsunami is an incredibly high energy event, right, and so it's going to have you bashing around at things now they can probably I guess pad the inside of this thing, but you're also going to be in there with other people, and there's this metal pole for you to hold on to. I just wonder if when you open this thing up at the end, is it just going to be like a big bloody mess inside
2: hmm. unless you pack enough sorry for the horrible image, in. but unless you you do go complete clown car in this and you just make sure that you fill it up completely. And then some individuals survive, some don't. It's kind of like there's the, like not enough room for you to knock around. Yeah, yeah. You kind of you do like the, the 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 different species of ants that make barges out of themselves to survive. Okay. You know. Uh,
1: well, anyway, there is another tsunami survival capsule I came across. A similar device created by aircraft engineers Julian Sharp and Scott Hill. And uh, this one, it's got its own website. And instead of being yellow, this is a red-orange color. And instead of the minimalist floor and pole interior layout, the survival capsule has uh, fitted seats with seat belts that look kind of like pilot's chairs. And it seats two to ten adults, depending on the model. I just want to read off some of the standard features uh safety seating with 4-point harness straps storage space with sufficient for uh, they say sufficient for 5 days supply per person supply of what i'm i'm not quite sure <laughs> water storage internal light gps air ventilation vents uh they they say it's high visibility unit color uh air supply tanks hard restraint support uh a watertight marine door and a marine standard window a little porthole but then this was the thing that got me. They said, OK, they, so all that stuff. OK, you can see why you'd have all those things. But they've also got optional features they advertise, including surround sound music
2: system. I, this would be a must, I think. And I've got two <laughs> two two reasons here. OK. First of all... uh Ambient music has tremendous soothing qualities. Music for airports, yeah, Brian Eno. My, that's what'll get you through what the tsunami. better time, to you know. And maybe he would have a he would he would create a custom uh, composition, uh, you know, music for uh, tsunami survival, survival, survival capsules. capsules. Yeah, uh, but yeah, you'll be able to calm yourself down. But the other thing is, if you pay all, you know, I'm guessing a pr- fairly ridiculous sum for this. uh Upscale survival capsule. You might want to spend some time in it. Like I would want to. I would if I had a stressful day. I'd want to go home and just climb into my survival capsule and maybe crank some tunes. I I'm with you. Yeah, I can see it. Yeah, it, it can be your safe place. Okay. Well, what are, what are my other options? I'm already on board for the for okay. the music. You can pay up for
1: dry powder seat toilet. Okay. I'm not so. I don't know because <laughs> on one hand we we all who have access to modern plumbing are very grateful for that that luxury. Uh, many people throughout human history have not had such luxuries. But do you really want I, – I don't know. I mean, on one hand, I guess it might be better than the alternative, but I'm just thinking about the idea of human waste sloshing around in a survival capsule. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess maybe it's going to be coming out either way, and it's just a question of do you have a toilet or not.
2: Yeah, well, I'm wondering what this consists of because it instantly makes me think of, um, overnight canoe trip, the trips that I've been on where you're required by the park to have a toilet option on the canoe. And what, what we had was, in a sense, it was kind of an escape capsule. It was a, a Folgers coffee can with kitty litter in it. Ugh. In the event that you needed to use the restroom in there, you certainly could. It would not be fun, but it could be done. And just having it there. You know, made you feel a little easier, and made the park rangers feel a little easier. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. maybe it's all psychological. Yeah, uh, I, feel, I mean that's that's a large part of any
1: uh, escape system. That's true. Yeah, you got to manage your mind. Uh, but then there's uh, additional internal lighting you can pay up for. Okay, solar panel array. That yeah. would that survive a tsunami? external solar panel Ooh, array know. and you're getting hit by a giant wave. I mean, uh,
2: maybe if it was properly shielded with some sort of, uh, you know, uh, like, a, like a really firm plexiglass kind of situation. Yeah,
1: I'm wondering about that.
2: Uh, but then additional
1: internal insulation, acoustic and thermal. And then finally, they've got color options.
2: I like that the whole point was we want it to be visible, though.
1: Yeah, well, it's this red-orange color. I mean, the other one's a yellow color. I'd imagine either one could be visible. So maybe yeah. you can also be yellow. Hmm. It would be horrible if if you wanted to pick a survival capsule that was like, uh,
2: I don't know, seawater gray. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, surely they wouldn't allow that. But maybe like zebra stripes. I could see where there might be some sort of custom eye-catching color you'd go for. A racing stripe. Yeah, that would work. NASCAR number.
1: <laughs> Though I do want to say, I mean, while the concept of these capsules is kind of funny to me, obviously, I mean, if you reckon it all with... The, the real outcome of a tsunami. I mean, it, the, these are some of the most devastating natural disasters in all the world, in all of world history. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the, and, and it can be truly horrifying. And it's one of those things where you think, well, there, there really is no great escape from this if you don't have forewarning. Um, and so anybody who could design a a viable tsunami sur- a survival capsule that people could really use to survive could be affordable to many i mean i i think that would be a worthwhile thing to pursue so i don't want to i don't want to just make jokes about what no, these no, no. people are doing uh i don't know the 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 toilet seems a little funny to me but But, yeah, I mean, if you can actually make a capsule and you can get it to the people who are most vulnerable to tsunamis, I think that's a noble thing to do.
2: Plus, let's face it, if if you can't laugh about pooping in a coffee canister. Right. On the on the on the escape barge on the in the survival capsule, then what's the purpose of surviving? You know, because our humanity has to survive. And that entails being able to laugh uh, at the prospect of pooping in a Folgers canister.
1: That humorous gesture would be uh, the, the true presence of a happy spirit on board.
2: Yes. All right, so uh, one more example of an escape uh, capsule to discuss here. So many of the uh, capsules we've mentioned share the same mission, right, to return adventurous humans to the Earth's surface. Right. From a malfunctioning aircraft uh, to, to the surface, etc. But what about when things go haywire beneath the surface of the Earth?
1: Are you talking about uh, underground core drilling vehicles, like in the core? Um, uh,
2: well, we're not quite there yet. Did, did they have an escape capsule, like some sort of a drill know. thing that came up?
1: I'm sorry to say this. I've never seen the core.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, it makes me, uh, this idea makes me think of the, uh, what was it, the, the Terror Dome on uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Right. Because it would, it would drill down. And I think they had, they had the equivalent of like a, a little drill vehicle that would come up. That was kind of like an escape capsule that the the foot soldiers would jump out of in the uh, video game, right? I don't remember anything about that, but I believe you. Yeah. Well, it was, it was fantastic and, uh, you know, could probably not exist in real life, but here's an example of something that did. So, you can find various mining escape capsule patents out there, but the most notable deployment real life deployment of so of one of these systems uh came in the wake of the two thousand ten Chilean mining accident. Do you remember uh when this occurred
1: i don't i mean I remember various mining accidents, but uh mm-hmm. I, this one the particulars of it don't stand out to me. So what happened here?
2: Uh, so this was 33 miners trapped 700 meters. That's uh, 2300 feet underground and, uh, and about uh, five kilometers or three miles from the mine's interests entrance. So this was a pretty big deal. They made a movie about it recently. Like I think they called it 33 or the 33. Uh-huh. Um, so they're, they're trapped in this hostile environment. Um, it's, it's hot down there. It's dark. Uh, It's cramped and they've got to get out, right? So to rescue them, what they did is they they utilized steel rescue capsules, and these uh, these were updated takes on the t- torpedo-like uh, Dahlbush bomb that had been uh, employed uh, since the mid 1950s, developed in Germany. Dahlbush bomb? Uh, yeah, that's what they they called it because I guess it kind of looks like a bomb, kind of looks like a torpedo. Okay. And this was used. uh, to, uh This was employed uh, again in the the mid 1950s um, in a German mine. So they updated this. They dubbed it the Phoenix. And uh, they were constructed by the Chilean Navy with design input from NASA. And they implemented most of NASA's uh, changes. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, so, so when the when the uh, mining accident occurred, this was you know this was a big this was big news. It was captivating all the headlines. Everyone was really concerned. There was a lot of international attention, and thus uh, NASA's uh, involvement as well. But
1: I'm trying to imagine, like, what does a mine a mine escape pod look like? Like, how does that
2: work? It basically looks like a torpedo, and the idea is, all right, you're down there in this uh this subterranean environment. Uh-huh. If we can get a shaft down there to you, okay. then we can potentially get you back up or uh or if there's an adjacent shaft and we can somehow get you to that shaft et etc so this this uh phoenix capsule consisted of again kind of like this torpedo looking device each one had retractable wheels to allow for a smoother ride to the surface so the wheels would skid along the sides of the uh, vertical shaft that you're you're being pulled back up. OK, uh, each one have an oxygen supply, lighting, video and voice communications, reinforced roof to protect against uh, rocks that are falling because rocks could fall uh, down uh, the, uh, the tunnel that you're ascending and you would need protection against those um, and also an escape hatch with a safety device to allow the passenger to lower themselves back down if the capsule became stuck on oh. the way up. God, that would be scary. Yeah, so these were these were pretty these were pretty amazing little devices, um, and uh, they've uh, I, th- I think they were they were making the rounds for a little bit like a little bit because they were showing them off because they were able to successfully get everyone out of the uh, the mine using the Phoenix capsules.
1: Oh, really? Yeah, this is weird. I, I'm feeling this. Fe- I don't usually experience uh, strong claustrophobia, but oh, yeah. just
2: now contemplating this, I'm overwhelmed. Oh well, you should you should definitely check out more about the story. There was a wonderful I want to say it was an episode of the Ideas podcast out of Canada uh, that. Uh, into they, I think they interviewed an author who'd written a book about it. I think it's the same book that the movie was based on. Hmm. And they went into detail just talking about just how bad the situation was and like the attitudes among the, uh, the survivors and, and what was going on topside as well. So it's a, it's a really interesting human drama. I haven't seen the movie yet, but it kind of makes me want to see it. Interesting. All right. So we've talked about aviation escape pods. We've talked about space escape pods. We've talked about weather-related escape pods, mining escape pods. Uh, what could we have possibly left out here? Um You know what they need is a human body escape pod for the brain.
1: That's yeah. one of the, the cybernetic upgrades I'm hoping for. Yeah, or,
2: or it sounds more like a spiritual upgrade as well. No, like no, 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 no. Maybe that's what no, essentially, uh, religion is, right?
1: The, the brain, you get to maybe the brain, upper nervous system is uh, encased in a survival uh,
2: eject capsule.
1: Okay. Something bad happens to the body. Your brain kind of shoots out and waits for rescue.
2: Huh. Well, I guess the a more slightly more believable version of this would be just the idea that that we would have our consciousness our memories backed up somewhere digitally right so that every you know i don't know how how, how often would you want to be backed up how much time are you willing to lose in your life
1: oh every I, week? you know every week yeah that's yeah. fine
2: so if something happens you just eject the sd card yeah remember to save after every important life event because uh-huh. you'd hate to be like oh whew. I just uh, the birth of my first child, and I forgot to save and then I got I got hit by a car and, do you know, don't worry, it's not the biggest tragedy in the world because I now have my body back. But I have no memory of the birth because I did not save immediately after.
1: Or you could look at it the other way and say, if you don't save after every great event, uh, you get to relive and rediscover the greatness
2: of this great event over and over again. I guess if you can pull it off a second time. And isn't that the goal of any escape pod to to give you the chance uh, to have a second go at all of life's uh, experiences? Well, we know we've not covered
1: all of the great escape capsules, pods, uh, survival vehicles that have ever been created. So if you've been thinking of one out there. And you're like, ooh, 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 why aren't you talking about this?
2: You should let us know. Yeah, let us know about the fictional ones. Let us know about the real life uh, escape capsules. Let us know about uh, some of the proposed ones that just uh, haven't come to fruition yet. Uh, we would love to hear about them. And hey, let us know. You want to do you want to hear an episode about fallout shelters? We could do it. Uh, yeah, does, that, uh, does that episode about uh, guns in outer space interest you? Let us know. We could do that episode as well. Really, <laughs> it's it's all uh, it's all on the table. And if you want to get in touch with this, reach out to us at stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's our mothership. That's where we find links out to all our social media accounts, as well as various podcast episodes, blog posts, videos you name it.
1: And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can do so as always at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com.
2: For more on this and thousands of other topics,
1: visit howstuffworks.com.
0: Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually